Bibles with you this morning, if you would turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter will be in the first chapter, that's right after the letter of Hebrews. If you flip too far, you miss it. 1 Peter 1 will be in verses 13 through 21 this morning. If you have found your spot, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word this morning. May you hear the Word of Christ. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for another Sunday in which we can gather as your church, as your people who are ready to listen. And we are expecting you as the God who continues to speak, that you are not silent. You are never silent. You are always active. You are always making yourself known in one way or, the, or another. But one of the ways that you make yourself so audible and so clear is through your word. So, Lord, speak this morning. May we give our restless hearts over to you. May we rest in your word. May we be filled with your hope. May we be filled with who you are. And may we be filled with Christ. And so, Lord, we offer these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we took some time to look at what it means to be planted in the church. That's our third small thing for the year of 2019, being planted in the church. And so what we're going to look at for the next uh, three weeks after this week is continuing to search the scriptures of how, uh, why it is the case that Christ wants us to be planted in the church, but also at the same time, what is the mission? What's the goal? Why are we even doing this? Why does it matter? If Christ is Lord and He has called forth a people, His body, to be planted in Him, but also to be planted with one another, what are the purposes and goals of our meeting together, of our assembling together? 
And so last week as we looked at uh, being planted in the church for our children and uh, serving them, but also being planted in the church and serving and helping others by teaching in our uh, Sunday school groups, in the times that we meet with one another throughout the week, we were focused on that. But this week we're going to look at um, really the next three weeks, uh, almost four weeks, that we're going to look at uh, these types of questions that come up as it relates to being planted in the church. And this week we're looking at the question of whose, whose are you? Whose are you? Next week we're going to look at who are you? The next week after that we're going to look at uh, the question of why are we the way that we are? And these are all focused on the question and the topic of the church and to be planted here as God's people. And so with uh, 1 Peter 1 in front of us this morning, we're going to continue asking that question because I think that's one of the things that Peter is bringing out is whose you are. In fact, you can go to any of the early church letters, uh, whether it's Romans or Corinthians or Thessalonians or even the early Gospels, and you can keep seeing this over and over and over and over again. And it's this sort of topic and question of whose are you? Because the early church wanted to remind themselves and one another of the God who had acted in and through the person of Christ and how they now belong to this Jesus. And they belong to the Father because of the work of Christ and His Spirit. And so we're going to continue asking that question, whose are you throughout this sermon this morning? So the tone and tenor of this morning is one of encouragement. I, I truly hope that you're encouraged by this message because I want your eyes set on the God who has acted on our behalf. I want your heart fully aligned with what He has done and what He continues to do through us. But also, it's going to be one of conviction. I don't think you can really have one without the other. That there is a spark of, of encouragement, yet when we're encouraged we realize as great as this is, I fall short in these areas. And that's not a negative thing, church. To be reminded that we, we are to be convicted to move a little bit quicker. We need to be moving in a little bit different direction towards the aim of fulfilling Christ's own great commission. So whence it comes to 1 Peter 1, you do see again and again this theme of redemption. And every time, every time I hear that word redemption, uh, you know, a couple of passages pop up in my head. But when I start thinking in a slightly different direction of redemption, I think of movies and great movies that have represented rep uh, redemption for the past few decades. One in the past couple of years is Unbroken. I think it came out last year, 2018. An incredible message of redemption. The Green Mile is a great movie of redemption with Tom Hanks. And how can we forget Shawshank Redemption? An incredible message of redemption. Again, so many great actors in that film. But also, one that we probably might look over, at least in the past 60, 70 years of films, is It's a Wonderful Life. A great story of redemption. An incredible story of redemption with 
George Bailey and uh, Clarence, the angel who shows up and all settled in the, the city and town of Bedford Falls. An incredible story of how this man understood his situation in light of a bigger picture. And one of the things that I want us to do this morning, and I'm going to let the story of It's a Wonderful Life hang on towards until the very end of the sermon. But one of the things that is so powerful about It's, it's a Wonderful Life is that how George needed to see himself in the lowest part of his life. He needed to see his, his own situation in a bigger story that was happening. And I hope we get that from the scriptures this morning is that we do see our lives in a bigger story that is taking place on the very ground on which we walk every single day. And that is God's redemption flowing in our lives and in his actions through us and his work through us. So let's look at 1 Peter Give you a little bit of background information about 1 Peter. Uh, it was written likely from Rome, the city of Rome. And we know this for a couple of hints in the text, but mainly towards the end of the, uh, the letter itself, he says about uh, this little uh, word Babylon, which was sort of a code word in this time for Rome itself. Also, it's a circular letter. Uh, it was written to a handful of churches. It was sent and it was meant to be read to encourage the church, to convict the church there, and then it was passed on. It was circulated through a number of them. It is written mainly to non-Jewish audience. And we get this by how he's addressing his audience. Yet what's so powerful about this is that he's bringing out Old Testament language in order to describe these non-Jews which was a powerful moment in the early church itself is because they weren't seen as a part of the promises of God because they weren't of the Jewish faith. Yet through Christ, he is bringing them into the family of God. And so Peter is reminding them of that. But also the powerful themes of suffering, of hostility, and also harassment that's taking place in the early church. Very, very difficult time for this early church. They're experiencing much suffering, uh, much hostility, and much harassment because, one, uh, from, the, from the Jewish crowd, that they are testifying that this Jesus is truly the Messiah, the Christ who has been promised. And the Jews are pushing back on that and saying, no, 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 no. This can't be the case. Or they're experiencing the harassment from Rome itself. You mean to tell me that you're going around and saying that there is another king greater than Caesar? No, 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 you can't say that either. So they're experiencing it from both sides and not just from one angle in particular. And so you'll see Peter talk about, uh, as the Old Testament Jewish uh, family of God was understood as exiled and chosen, they were seen... Uh, in the same manner, they are too exiled. They too are chosen people. But now there's this new hope, this new identity, new family, a new exodus that's happened through Christ, this new temple language and this new kingdom of priests. All language that is a part of the Old Testament now being placed on the shoulders of the early church. And so it shows a lineage that this New Testament people this new church that has their faith in this Jesus, they're not something brand new, but there's an old history and it's rooted in 
the Jewish scriptures themselves. And so you have Peter continually reminding them and encouraging them, this is who you are, and this is whose you are. And so let's look at that. Same God, new chapter. Israel always knew whose they were. They were the people of Yahweh, this God who had acted again and again and again throughout history. This God who showed himself to Moses and sent Moses on this mission of redeeming an entire people from slavery and bringing them into a land of promise. This God who redeems. This God who reveals himself. This God who continues to speak through his prophets and through his teachers to the people of Israel. And so you have this God continually reminding them that they are his. They are his. This is your, I am yours and you are my possession. But this flows over and this spills over into another one that this is who they are. We cannot separate those two, church. We cannot separate whose we are from who we are. That the God that has redeemed us is the God in which we identify ourselves. And we continue to bring ourselves back into his presence and reminding us that this is to uh, the one to whom our hearts belong. And so what you have here uh, also uh, in whose you are and who you are is very common in Jewish thought to understand yourself in light of your family history in light of this God who had taken care of every single genealogy, every family tree, every grandfather, grandmother, he had it all set apart. And in fact, if you were to look at the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, the first verse, Matthew doesn't open up with some grand claim. What does he open up with? A genealogy. This is what he writes. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Early on, Matthew is very clear that if you want to know who this Jesus is, you got to know to whom he belongs. And who's that? To David. Oh, David was what? A great king. But this Jesus is a greater king. Oh, he also belonged to Abraham. Why is this important? Because it is through Abraham that the promises of God would come. And so early on, even in Matthew's gospel, if you need to understand who this Jesus is, you've got to go back to whom he belongs. And so here is what we have of who this God is in 1 Peter 1. Let's walk through each of these verses quickly. In verse 13, we see that Peter is reminding them that this is the same grace, but also the same God who brings about revelation. Revelation is just simply a very a big term to understand a revealing, an appearing that happened. And so early on, he says this, that this revelation of Jesus himself is from the God who has always acted and spoken on behalf of God's people. So you have a God who reveals himself. Secondly, if you go to verse 15, you have this reminder that is from Leviticus to be holy as God is holy. This God is holy. 
Well, what else do we know about this God? In verse 16, it says that He is the Father of the ones who, whom He judges impartially. So we have a father figure of who this God is. In verse 17, we talk about the God who is of the God uh, of, of exilers. He is one near to those who are marginalized and pushed to the edges. He is close to them no matter the lows of life. Exile, you should be thinking of a very despondent and very dark situation. This God of exile. Well, what else do we know about this God? Verses 18 and 19, which I would say are the meat of this passage. This is a God who ransoms a people. He ransoms a people. This is a God who saves a people from their own brokenness and their own destruction. In verse 20, we find out that this God is all-knowing. The language that uh, Peter uses is foreknown. That he knew from the very foundation of the world that he was going to send his son to restore and redeem a people. Also, we find out about this God. He's very active in what he continues to do. That he continues to manifest himself even into the day in which Peter is writing. He is active. Verse 21, this is packed full as well. He is a rescuer, a redeemer, and a resurrector, if I can make that word up. He is one who is active in the life of the church, active in history, and he is redeeming and rescuing and resurrecting a people to himself. So and from verses 13 to 21, we see so much of who God is. And it is shown again and again in order to encourage this early church of who they are and to whom they belong. What's also powerful that it's not explicit in the text, but we find it uh, throughout the, the writing of 1 Peter is that this is a God who speaks. We have this revelation language in verse 13, but it's more about the revelation of, of Jesus himself, the actual person coming before a people and making himself very known in the flesh. But we also find this is a God who speaks. What we need to know about the God who speaks is that we use this word and we probably overuse it way too much because when you overuse a word, we can completely empty it of its meaning. And that word is gospel. When we say, oh, speak the gospel, live the gospel before people, we can overuse it, that we empty it. But if we understand the depth and the width and the breadth of the meaning itself, it becomes far more powerful. Because the, the word gospel, euangelion, in, in the original Greek was a very uh, militaristic term. When a king would go into a new land or some emperor would invade a new land, he would go into this new land and he would conquer this other country. He would conquer this other people. And then after the war had been won or the battle had been uh, shown victory, he would settle his own country in this country. So when Rome made their way across Asia and Europe, and they would settle themselves into a new country because they had defeated them. You are now citizens of Rome. And what he would do then is he would send a messenger. Which in the language that we use today, this would be uh, a euangelion. The one who sends a good message. 
an angel. You can probably hear it as an angel. This is a messenger who has a good message to give. And so this emperor would send this angel, this angel, this messenger back to Rome to deliver the message that victory has been won in this, this place that they were going into. This is the language that the early church picks up on. Because a king has come, he's come into a land, he has proclaimed victory, and he has sent out messengers, his people, his church, to herald a good news message that the king has come and he is here and he has defeated and brought about victory. And so when you have the early church talking about the God who speaks, this is what they have in mind. The ones who give out this good news, this good message. So let's go back and look at Peter's language of ransom. Because again, as I said a minute ago, I think what the heart of the gospel message is that it is about Jesus' ransom. About Jesus' own death on behalf of others in order to redeem a people back to the Father. You have him writing... Uh, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Once it comes to understanding this language of redeem, you really do have to go back to another story, and it's the story of Ruth. Because here you have in the story of Ruth an incredible message of redemption. Because what you find in Ruth itself is that you have this, uh, this woman, Ruth, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then you have also this other sister-in-law that's there. And then you have these two brothers. And unfortunately, a famine happens and they're stricken with Death in the family, the Elimelech, the, the, the dad dies, and then the two brothers die, and you're left with just women in a land of famine. And so you have this pleading of Naomi telling to Ruth to go, to go away back to the people that you came from and to make sure that they take care of you. And Ruth says, no, 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 where you go, I will go. Where you lay your head down at night, I'll lay my head down at night. Where you go to serve your God, I will go to serve this God as well. And so you have Ruth traveling with Naomi throughout the rest of the story. And towards the middle, you have this powerful message of this Goel, this Redeemer, who comes onto the scene. And it is through this figure, this Redeemer, Boaz, he sees Ruth working hard in the fields, and he asks who she is, and they continue to tell her she's a hard worker. She's here from daylight to, de uh, to sunset, and she's continuing to work, bringing in the crops, and Boaz starts paying attention to her. And soon enough, you find that if you don't have this redeeming of this woman, Ruth, you have absolutely nothing left for this family. To be widowed in this day, you're pretty much expected to die sooner or later because you had no man to help in certain ways financially and um, spiritually. You had them to not help 
uh, physically. And so here you have this man who's paying attention to this woman and you have Naomi continuing to encourage uh, Ruth to take herself and to put her in the presence of Boaz so that this Redeemer will indeed bring you close and so that we will be taken care of. Because a Goel, a Redeemer, was one who understood that this was a, a wrong situation was at hand. There was some sort of awful situation, such as a woman without a husband. That was the most unjust thing that could have happened in this time and day. You would have had somebody who was eventually going to die of starvation. She was pushed to the margins, and there was no one there to help her. But you could redeem the situation. A goel could come onto the scene. This could be a brother, and it usually moved closer into the family niche and then further out. A brother, an uncle, you could have a male cousin and then extended family members who could marry this woman to bring her into a family and to make sure that she was taken care of. And so this kinsman redeemer would come in and redeem and make this such wrong situation right. And so what you have in the story of Ruth is that Boaz comes in and he redeems Ruth And everything is made right. And come to find out, if you look at the end of Ruth itself, she becomes a grandmother to none other than King David. So it is God providentially putting these pieces together so that a people can be united, reunited, and stay together. And the promises are continually being fulfilled. And they are still seeing that God is at work behind the scenes. It is to whom they belong in and of itself. So once we come to see this Goel, this ransomer in Peter, that's the picture he has in mind. People who are left at the margins, who have nobody to take care of them, and yet here comes this ransomer, this redeemer, who comes in, redeems a people through his life, his death, is resurrection and brings them close back again to the Father. So the question we need to ask this morning is, whose are you? Because we belong to somebody whether we know it or not. We do. As I saw a quote this past week is, if you dethrone Jesus, you're going to put something in its place. Same right here is that we always are able to place certain things above our God. We're always belonging to somebody or to something, but we have to continue to look and investigate our own lives and say, to whom do we really belong? Because as Paul reminds us, we can either be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Hopefully, we are people of the ransomed God who continues to bring his people close and that we are sent out as a gospel people proclaiming a message of good news that death has been defeated and that the king has come to proclaim that victory through us. We are his gospel people. And so this is where I leave us this morning. Let's pull all of this together. I told you I'd return to It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember Clarence's job? He was the angel, right? You don't catch him until an hour and about 20 minutes into the movie. 
And so the last hour is felt in understanding what Clarence is there to do. And it's simply this, to present Bedford Falls without the presence and person of none other than George Bailey. What would Bedford Falls look like, George, without you? What would it look like? And he then paints that scene for the next hour. Well, you realize now, George, and also your father, that you, you had a presence here in Bedford Falls that these people needed you. They absolutely needed you in the worst of times and the best of times. So if it weren't for Clarence announcing the news to George, he would have never been redeemed. Because it's in those last moments that George is willing to even take his life. Remember that? But it's this angel who shows up at the last minute to remind him that he is a part of a bigger story that is happening. And so if I could throw one question out to you this morning as it relates to the gospel that you heard. If it weren't for blank, and you fill in that in blank, if it weren't for blank, you would have never trusted that God is truly the one as Peter reminds us. He's the God of revelation, the God who is holy, the God who is our father. He's the God of our exilers, the God of ransom, the God who is all-knowing and active. It is the God who rescues and redeems and resurrects. If it weren't for blank, and you fill in that name, hopefully you've got people in your minds right now, you would have never heard that message. Who is it? And if they're still alive, if they're not before the very presence of Christ, I want to push you to do something this week. Go thank them. Thank you for announcing to me the good news that Christ had defeated death, that Christ did ransom me with a great price, a price of his own death. Go thank them this week. Send them a message. Give them a call. And thank them for announcing that the news has been good and the news is that Jesus is victorious. And also, if we can give a little bit of conviction as it relates to Clarence's job as well. Clarence showed himself, uh, if he were to show up here at Hickory Grove on this very day. And, and then he revealed to us the community of Trenton without Hickory Grove. I mean... Would there be impact that shaped generations like George? That's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. And that's not something to say, look at what we don't do, but it's a, a convictional note that we need to continue to strum, continue to sing is, what would Trenton be like if it weren't for us? Just like George Bailey, the type of impact that he, he didn't realize he had if he had never existed. What type of impact do we truly have? And what type of impact would not be there in Trenton if we didn't exist as God's people? And so I think as a community, hopefully the community of Trenton says about us individuals, but about us as a church is simply this. I know to whom they belong. Lord willing, that's what they do say. We know to whom this church belongs and it is certainly Christ. We know without a doubt whose they are. Church, if I could get you to do something this week is to take a personal inventory, a spiritual inventory. 
And to continue asking that question to yourself every single day, whose am I? Whose am I? And just look through those verses 13 through 21 of 1 Peter 1 and see that this God is a rescuer and redeemer. He is a resurrector. He is a ransomer. And to trust and keep your eyes on that God as He continues to work through us and making the type of impact that we really don't see, but Lord willing, in generations we will. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy and grace. Because we're drowning in it. As the message this morning, the tenor and tone is one of encouragement, but also conviction. That we see here in 1 Peter 1 that you are a God who reveals himself. A God who knows every single hair on our head. A God who continues to rescue and redeem and resurrect. That your job is not done. And so, Lord, hopefully we continue to shape, have our hearts shaped by you. And that we give over our hearts every single week, every single day. And we are reminded that our hearts belong to you. And so, Lord, continue to teach us of how we can be your people. A people who spread holiness. A people who are of wholeness that we are truly gifting the community with our presence. And ultimately, not our presence, but yours. And so may you convict us this week. Shape our hearts and cast our eyes in the right direction so that we might truly see that it is to you that we belong first and foremost. And so give us those eyes and Make our hearts fertile and soft for that this week so that we do truly understand and believe the message that has been announced to us, that you are king. And so may we proclaim it with our lips and lives. And we offer these things in your son's name. Amen.